This is Human V Robot, a podcast about the intersection of humanity and technology. Welcome to Human V Robot, a podcast about the intersection of humanity and technology. I'm Andy Vanny, and I'm here with my sister, Heather Hallgrimson. Heather, how are you doing? Doing good. Thanks. Good. So this week we are going to talk about the subject of conflict, which uh, seemed like a fairly fruitful topic that we probably won't uh, won't be able to cover too in depth in this episode. But before that, I wanted to just do a quick update of things that I've seen relating to Human V Robot that I thought were interesting. Uh, so the first thing. This week I listened to the podcast called Cortex, and episode 133 is titled The Ethics of AI Art, and uh, they they jump into it fairly late into the episode. If you want to jump to the specific time, it's at, at about an hour and six minutes in. So they were talking about these some of the new AI art generating systems like Dolly 2 and Stable Diffusion. Which is, uh, and it was interesting to hear their reactions because uh, CGP Grey is a YouTuber, fairly famous YouTuber, and he was more just curious about implications. And Mike Hurley, who is like more of a podcast host of a number of different podcasts, um, he had a very visceral negative reaction to some of these systems. And I don't blame him, but I found it interesting. Some of the reactions, like one of his comments was basically like, we don't need this. This is a technology that we just, we simply don't need in the world. Right. And I, I understand the sentiment, but I don't think there's any stopping it really like without legislation these kind of deep fakes and and ai impersonating kind of artwork things and even ais that uh replace creative jobs are imminent they are on the on the horizon so i don't think i don't think there's any stopping it and so my my main curiosity was like how he sees this differently than the other technologies that have already replaced jobs, like there are already a number of things like going back, I mentioned in a previous episode, like factory work, there's robots that are doing things that would have been manual labor jobs, even five, 10 years ago, right? That are quickly replacing a lot of those manual labor jobs. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to argue those because they're not like the people doing those jobs may not be passionate about this as their career. Whereas in design and art, these are careers that people are passionate about uh, pursuing. So it it is a little different, uh, but it also ties in like Amazon replacing drivers with drones or any of these things, right? Like how do we think about the ethics of technology that replaces jobs? So I don't know if you've seen this website. It's called willrobotstakemyjob.com. And I've heard of it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's kind of interesting. Like when I first saw it, I was like, okay, it's it's interesting. It's more posing a question. I don't think it's an accurate prediction of whether, because like even in my job, like I'm a software developer and it said, oh, well, there's one point to uh, 
cramped working like it was basically talking about the ergonomics of a robot doing my job which is totally ridiculous because okay <laughs> like <laughs> it, it make, it's not like i will like leave my office a robot will walk in and sit down at my desk and start typing like that's just not how automation no. uh robots you know work you know it's really funny too i think i mentioned that last week too it's like how we conceive of robots and how they take over our jobs is so yeah. far from how robots are actually sort of like quote I'm using air quotes here taking yeah. over yeah um because like the influence they have is not like a one-to-one correspondence for a job and i also saw something funny this week um it was basically like look showing like how few robots in sci-fi movies are able to walk downstairs. Just none of them can take stairs. Right. Like, it's just... And so it's funny looking at, like, an oversight that's, like, such a simple activity for a human to do, just, like, walk downstairs. <laughs> um, you know, like, C-3PO can't walk downstairs. Yeah. Basically, that's just, like, a kind of a cute way of conceiving of them, but that's, like, better left for sci-fi movies. Right. Yeah, I thought... Also, coming back to the ethics piece of it, like, I, I think it's interesting. Um, it, it gets really fuzzy because we think of a creative job as, like, sometimes they are, like you say, they're they're not a one-to-one. They're just shortcuts. So, like, say generating ideas. Like, I've used logo generators and stuff like that before, and it doesn't totally replace a designer or whatever, but you can get a lot of... Uh, material you can get inspiration from them and that's already having an effect on the world I think right now and is there yeah I don't know even how to ask that question is there you know should we be putting the brakes on at some point and saying no humans still need jobs or is that uh legislation thing where we say you know humans what what is our role in the future? I guess <laughs> that's yeah. a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Tricky. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to imagine a future. It's going to go a bit political, but um, a future for humans, like when we if we replace a, a lot of the work that needs to be done to sort of keep society moving forward, it's hard to imagine a future where. Um, we can't we won't institute something like a living wage to reduce yeah. the or or we will just live with an absolutely bizarre amount of inequality and right. just think people will be benevolent enough to look after other people through yeah. donating money but the concentration of wealth will be enormous yeah um for the few people who do manage to still have jobs yeah so that is one thing that is it's a little bit difficult to think about. Yeah. But you're right in the sense that we can, we're sort of, is there even any kind of ability to stop that train? I mean, technically, yes, I'm sure there is, but I just don't see any real support for saying, oh, no, never mind. We're just not going to do that AI thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. That was fun, but it was too, too troubling. Uh, right. <laughs> at this point, I've seen most people in their sort of writing and uh, looking at that question is just to try to position AI as an assistant, as a helper, like to try to ensure that it serves the needs of humans. And a lot of people are thinking of it different ways and have different theories about that. But it's like essentially trying to keep it in like a subservient role. Um, And even that though, is kind of, I don't know. It's funny though, when you mentioned the job thing, um, like the kinds of jobs and the kinds of work that AI takes over um, because we do sort of view certain types of jobs as like 
um, sort of elevated in society that um, we're like not comfortable with AI doing, even though the actual doing of that job might be things that AI happens to be very good at. Yeah. Um, and I was actually, that was related to my update. I said, okay, I have a bit of a shallow update, but this is related enough that I think I can sure, bring this yeah. out. So I was thinking about, you know, like TV shows um, that you're watching now that have, like I was watching TV shows and there was lawyers and, and the, the best lawyers just memorized a lot of stuff. They reviewed a lot of contracts. They just spent time just doing a lot of things that I was like, AI could really do this well. Like right. it's hard to imagine a human doing this better than an AI. I was just like finding red flags and contracts right. um, and, and like all of that I was just surprised to think um, or, or even like you know the TV show House he, he like remembered all this oh, yeah. data you know it's like we, we just put him up on this pedestal because he could just find like the weirdest yeah. stuff you know because he yeah. just remembered all of it I'm like well AI would be like even 10 times better than that you know or I don't know what the order of magnitude is yeah. there but yeah. um, and then I was thinking maybe it's like we'll look back on these TV shows where we sort of put people on a pedestal for crunching those big amounts of numbers <laughs> yeah. like you know when you watch a, sh- a show and they like people like whip out those like brick phones right And then we're like, haha, I can't believe we thought that was so cool, how adorable, how quaint. And I kind of wondered if we would look back at those kind of jobs and be like, how quaint we used to actually read our own contracts. And we used to actually, you know, um, have people remembering to diagnose things, you know, like, what a time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that uh, there's another part of that, which is like, how we think about human intuition because like house is a great example of where where it's proposed it seems like intuition right like it seems like a really strong human intuition when it's and this ties into my other little update is when it's really just good statistics like you've got lots of a broad understanding and look at the patterns and can infer something from it right yeah, or um, it's just taking in information that other people were minimizing or ignoring yeah. um, because they just didn't see that as part of it. But if you right. can track all of that information and crunch those numbers and have all the data, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to come to that conclusion. That's not an intuitive decision. That's yeah. just, and I'm not arguing that there's not such a thing as intuition. Yeah, I think I have a sense that the gut feeling sort of is separate than just like vast quantities of data. Yeah. Maybe a conversation for another day. Yeah, um, that goes a little bit to beliefs, I guess. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's just kind of like um, you know amazed to see that that I feel like we put that in the category of like wow, yeah, like just on you know like it's like you had this sense, you had this feeling, I'm like man, you just knew a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that's another piece I wanted to touch on because like. I'm kind of glad we don't have a major social media following because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would have been very angry that I just called AI statistics <laughs> or advanced <laughs> statistics because it's it is more than that. Like there are a few unique features, but at the like I I, I still stand by it mostly. You know, like it, it is a, a building on statistics. Like the the best models are the ones with the most data that can you know find those patterns. Uh, but the one, so the one piece like that I think is really unique and shows up in interesting ways from AI is the gradient descent model. And basically that just means like when you're learning, when you're trying to predict, you, you know, you course correct at a slower or faster pace when often, and oftentimes they optimize to a non-optimal solution. Like if you think of it as a landscape, 
you're kind of trying to get to the lowest error point, right? And if you end up in a valley that, and there's a lower valley somewhere else, you'll never get to that other lower valley just because that's how the how learning works in these systems is you're aiming for the lowest error rate that you can find. And if you can't see beyond the valleys, there are strategies and techniques that get you out of this. But um, but it is like you the the assumption basically is there's no with the amount of data that you have, there's no way to explore the entire space of possibility. Right. So like some people would say, well, why don't you just like zoom out and look at the entire landscape and find the lowest? Well, that's, you know, you're when you think about these computer challenges, often it's you have to think with those like with that limited understanding that you can only see what's around you. How do you get to the best solution? So yeah. I wanted to throw that in. There are other things that are make AI different from statistics, but it is really like built on this strong statistical foundation. So to I wanted to clarify that part. <laughs> That's a good point. Multiple passes, uh, which is essential. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple points of clarification. I think it's just natural. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's necessary to reduce something to make a point. Yeah. And also then sometimes then you have to abstract it to provide clarity. Yeah. Yeah, it we have found instances of that. I think we had mentioned the one where you were, it was trying to find sheep, I think, or something like Yeah. That that's one of those like that's definitely a gradient descent kind of error where it's found a, a solution that works and it won't go beyond that solution because because it works with all the data you have, you know? So, yeah, yeah. It, it produces these interesting side effects. <laughs> all right. Cool. Okay, good clarification. So our main topic we wanted to talk about was just, was conflict. And there's a few ways I think we're, we're thinking about this, but like, Mostly it's like, how do we deal with persuasion, dealing with conflict online? How do we change other people's minds and how do we change our own minds? And I think there's probably a lot of psychology in here, which you're going to be stronger <laughs> on and have more of a foundation in. But also, <laughs> you know, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But there's also like definitely a technology angle to this because it has changed a lot how we uh, deal with conflict, like being online, having virtual relationships and stuff like that. So um, the first article you linked was one about how uh, online conflict is different than in-person conflict. Yeah, I think I just wanted to talk about this in order to set the stage sure. um, to Basically, the point I want to make here uh, with a little bit of kind of geeking out on these uh, psychology terms is that conflict online is different than conflict in person. Right. So it is actually uh, our minds uh, process this differently. There's a reason why there are real legitimate reasons why when we sort of fight or argue online, it's going to be different than a face to face 
argument or disagreement. Right. Okay, there's a couple of reasons for this. So the disinhibition effect, um, which is basically like when we're alone in the safety of our homes, <laughs> yeah. then we just are free to say what we feel. Right. And some people kind of think, well, maybe that's the version of our true selves. I don't know if I really believe in that sort of true self business. Um, once right. we take the layers of inhibition off, like they use the example of someone that's like, oh, someone's shy. Uh, but then when they're online and they're not shy, maybe that is their true self. I don't know. That seems kind of like that's another argument for another person, maybe. So we feel disinhibited. The other thing is anonymity, where we can have anonymity, as in you don't know me, I can assume a different person, I can be a virtual persona. Um, like we talked about this in one of our other um, discussions about, um, you know, having sort of multiple personas that you can use and uh, reuse, throw away, evolve, and, you know, this sort of allows you to take on uh, different sort of personas. The next thing is the asynchronicity of virtual exchanges. So I can post something, go away and read it later. It doesn't happen all in the moment. Um, This is like mostly true of a lot of online interactions. I mean, this is a, is not asynchronous. This is happening between you and me right now, but the release is asynchronous. Um, So there's usually an element of, um, later <laughs> right. in most of these interactions. Uh, this, I mean, the disinhibition is related to the fact that you're invisible, so you can't see me. Like, I can hide, as yeah. in sh- just shut my computer and it's gone. Um, although this, like, maybe not entirely true. Um, but, yeah, so there's this, you can't see me, or, you know, I can sort of hide behind my persona, or I can hide behind um, the, you know, I get to escape and go for a walk and be a different person, my real person. Yeah. Real. I don't know. Whatever. Um, and then there's a, ooh, there's a real, real interesting one here called a solipsistic introjection, which I'm sure you would, will appreciate the, good, um, good words. Yeah. Solipsistic. Um, yeah. and it's kind of like, it's all in my head. That's what solipsism is. Right. Um, and I, I kind of like, I got a real kick out of solipsism because basically it's like, how do I know that the world isn't just a creation of my mind? And I was like, well, that is nuts. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I would think I would my life would be going like kind of better uh, if that were the case. But anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe I'd have a bigger house or something. I don't know, whatever. Just anyway, yeah, silly stuff like that. But really, I think that the effect here is that we, okay, so say you're typing with a person online um, and you type something, they do something. And the words that they wrote, you read back with the voice in your head. So that voice is reading it to you. So what happens when that voice is reading it to you is you can sort of feel like it's a creation of you. Like it's your creation. It's a character. It's almost like you're writing a book or something. It's a character who exists. And so it's interacting with you. So you're interacting with the character. So then you can kind of get this sense that it's actually all happening in your head. Um, and, and this isn't like a philosophy kind of a problem. This is just like the, the exchange is all happening in your head because you're creating their voice and their character and you're creating your own voice and your character. So that's sometimes why then it can kind of get divorced from, you know, the real exchange that's happening. Um, because it's sort of can feel like it's all in our head. So that's sort of the baseline of that's some of the psychological reasons why virtual or on conflict online and we're talking conflict as in like people arguing about stuff people disagreeing about stuff people trying to persuade other people of their opinions and ideas can be um can occur different to a conflict we would have in person so technology um you know it's like whenever new technology is invented it brings new things with it that we wouldn't have considered before 
Right. Um, so, you know, this kinds of exchanges were sort of not possible. And maybe there's some of it in like letter writing. I don't know. Right. <laughs> which feels very <laughs> archaic, um, yeah. but not necessarily to the same degree because of the sort of frequency of it and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So anyway, that's why conflict online is different. So there's my, my take on the psychology. I'm so just to drive into one of those points, like it's kind of interesting where like looking historically, like there was a time from like from the invention of the printing press to the television era era where most of our uh, social discourse happened in print. So I wonder I wonder how much of that like like there was a, a big structural change, probably. I'm guessing at that point where, and maybe this is uh, too much of a tangent, but like there was a structural change in how we uh, have that discourse because we're going from uh, print media where like people are writing books, writing uh, newspapers and stuff like that, and people are consuming it in their head, uh, you know, having that. Uh, solipsistic introjection kind of experience yeah. Yeah. uh and then moving into the the tv age where people are having like people talking at them which is a different very different experience like it's not non-interactive and one of the reasons i love internet technology is that it you know removes that it, it adds some level of interactive behavior where you're participating in the discussion yeah, creating, um, yeah. yeah uh but each of these like is a fairly big societal structural change in how we uh interact and so i just wanted to flag that as it's funny uh, how each leap the, you know, every single time there's a leap like that, I'm sure there's like people who say, wow, this is going to change people fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. Like I have heard that the invention of the printing press, uh, people said, wow, nobody's going to remember anything anymore. Right. Like memory is, is gone, you right. know, which was seen as a negative societal effect. Right. And maybe that's a little bit true. Yeah. Um, when I compare this to uh, did some like... Uh, one of my languages in university was ancient Greek. So the, the ways that um, sort of people remembered story in, in, you know, at that time was, you know, not primarily by writing it down, but um, through memorizing and they would use things like memory rooms. So you put, you put part of the story in a room of a house or something, a layout that you know, and then you walk through oh, the, yes. you know, the, you walk the through the... Memory palace, right? Memory is that, that's another yeah, name that's for it. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah, and I'm like, well, what an interesting thing to do. But also, yeah, yeah then, you know, it's kind of rendered obsolete by, uh, you know, just kind of a party trick yeah. <laughs> by the printing press. Um, so, you know, and this this shift also brings sort of unexpected, you know, to people, you know, talking online, arguing online, disagreeing online brings also unexpected things along with it. Right. So all of this kind of comes back, I think in an earlier episode, we talked about like psychological safety, how that can have very positive and very and possibly negative uh, effects. I, I'm curious, like, 
like how how we deal with that psychological effect because uh, i'm thinking of this in terms of how i change my own mind like where my biases are because i there was a time where i was very into the like you know tech founder way of thought where it's like oh how do you convince people persuade people change people's minds and whatever and i, I find that like a little bit gross now <laughs> when I see people getting into that, you know, like, it's like, oh, that's kind of like, it's kind of a sociopathic tendency. Or like egotistical? Like, yeah, egotistical. Like, I'm going to tell people what they should believe, you know? Yeah, like, who how, who are you to know? Like, yeah, come on. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of thinking about it in my own sense, like where, like, when I'm thinking about how I learn, uh, generally, it's from bearing witness to the experience of others. Like when I change my mind, it's basically I've heard, seen, experienced, whatever. I've come into contact with people that think differently than I do or whatever. Um, and sp spend time with that. I think, cause like, I think there's, it's significant in the, the time spent, like the number of touch points you you've had with an idea. Um, and I think sometimes like the, the, the crux of the issue is when you have that psychological safety, you may not be driven to or motivated to actually do the work of understanding different perspectives. Does that, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Is that a it good does. summary of the issue? And I also, I wanted to ask if you, if you believe that the sort of witnessing others experiences can be done virtually or in person. I, I think it definitely can be done virtually, but I think it ties into our episode last week where, you know, unless you're actively trying to get out of your personal interests and personal bubble, you probably won't experience those things. It just won't come up. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's totally right um, to say, like, I think that in order to update the models and the conclusions that we come to, we have to update it with information about, like, the sort of, a, we have to update the backstory, basically. Right. Um, because usually our beliefs are kind of a conclusion of a number of observations. Right. Um. And so I think we, in order to understand, like if we look at somebody maybe from, you know, like somebody who's a different circumstance, different culture, different way of life or whatever, and then we're like, wow, I wonder why they act that way. Relieve that. It's because they have a different set of assumptions. Right. Um, and so by allowing sort of by getting a window into the sort of the assumptions that led to the belief, I think it can help us to understand, oh, that's how we got there. And then also can allow us to update that sort of string of um, backstory, I guess. I don't know if I'm explaining yeah. these in the correct words, but, um, and also there's sort of like layers. The other thing I wanted to say too, is there's kind of layers of layers of beliefs that some of them are like kind of surface level things that are kind of easy to change our mind, but the closer they are related to your sort of personal construction of your self identity, the like 
harder it is to change because the more things that need to be updated in the system. So if you update one thing, you, it has far reaches. And so it's just a lot of mental work. So if you look at it from an efficiency perspective, it's just like hard for your brain to do. And it's lazy because it takes the amount of energy the brain uses for the body is like bonkers. Like it's, it's a really hungry machine. Um, and so it's just a lot of work. It doesn't want to do that. It wants yeah. to save energy. So it doesn't want to update all of these things. Right. Um, I don't know how that relates to like what you're saying, but I think that's, you know, that's the kind of thing it takes to change your mind. Yeah. And the way that you change your mind is not so much from usually from like a direct assault <laughs> yeah. of statistics yeah. is, uh, is a, is a view of why someone you know, believes what they believe and sort of their vision or view of the world. And then you sort of start to understand like, okay, that's, that makes sense. Those conclusions are rational. Um, Those conclusions are rational based on that person's assumptions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And another, so another aspect of that, I think is like, there is a, there is a tendency or I find myself, with a growing distrust of online stuff. So like, I, and I find it hard to show up as a fully real person in online interactions. And I think it's an important thing that we need to figure out how to do is like, um, so jumping all the way back to my first like little update thing there, there's like CGP gray, the is a, guy who has a podcast and a YouTube channel and has built up out any online personality has built out a fairly strong representation of themselves online. And there is a sense where if you have a few different channels, you have more uh, of yourself out there and can be witnessed to by people like me. (laughs) Uh, But thinking about that in terms of myself like what how do i do that and does it does the regular person need to do that like because if i say something on facebook or twitter or whatever it's like it feels ineffectual to me because only the people that know me in person will have any response to it right and and that's fine like for the moment but like to to join in this discourse you need to build a persona in a sense so that people know you as a real human (laughs) yeah and i think it's that's kind of disconcerting to me in that like the majority of humanity is not able to show up online as a fully human person because bots do it better than we do <laughs> you know they, they can they can get there quicker right <laughs> to yeah some level of you know uh exposure that the average person can't do right like they can't i can't have the same voice as uh yeah as other people that have built out their online persona better yeah and so just to clarify this sort of that the people who get to have a voice or the people that sort of a large group of people would pay attention to yeah. are the people who cultivate or spend the time cultivating a persona right. online. 
Yeah, yeah, I felt the same way too, like this sort of inclination to cultivate a persona yeah. and then just sort of like an, uh, an overarching laziness. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like who cares, yeah. right? Um, yeah, I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to ask before we, you know, before we wrap it up here too, is um, is how you've experienced virtual conflict or online conflict. Do yeah. you have a standout moment that uh, you wanted to share? Uh, I do. And this was actually like much more of a direct. So it, it was fairly early. We had a discussion group that we'd meet. We'd meet in person and then we'd have discussions online we had a for, uh, google groups forum i think at some point and we'd start talking and it was like a discussion got very heated like people were not understanding and listening and they were getting very argumentative and uh i i saw it like real time unfolding this uh uh, this difference between online interactions and in person because we got we got together a few months later in person and everything was fine like it was totally fine people understood each other like like there was body language and empathy and listening and it was just like so much better right and I it felt like a um, like a very telling moment for me because more people are not having that in-person release of being like, okay, I can actually talk this out, be heard, listen, listen to others and be fully human. You know, I don't know if like, if that was what you're driving at, but it was, yeah, important for me. What about you? Have you had things well, like that? Well, I'm not a, I'm, I'm a very uh, keep the peace sort of person. So right. I have a tendency not to share my opinions in a lot of contexts, um, maybe this one notwithstanding, I guess. Well, I'm not <laughs> sure there's a lot of divisive opinions here, but um, yeah. yeah. So no, I haven't really experienced. Um, I haven't really experienced a sort of a conflict where I really got into it with somebody online. Although there was a couple times <laughs> when somebody was saying something that was quite hateful, right? Or sort of bigoted. Uh, and it was on Facebook or something, which I know I, I, I didn't spend a lot of time on, but I went on there and I saw this person was saying something and I was like, this is, I just basically was like, you know, I can't believe you would say this. Of course you think this is just your perspective. Like, have you not considered the perspective of the other person that you're hating on? Like, wow, uh, this is pretty bad. And then I, I was just like, as a, I was just like, yeah, so fired up. I had to say something. And then I had quite a few people after message me directly and were like, I'm glad you said something because that person is really big and whatever. And, and yeah. was, I was like, Oh, okay. It was funny how people like never people that I hadn't heard from in years were like, yeah. I'm glad you, you said something. But I also felt like, why did I say anything? Because what I say will not change their mind. I right. knew it. I yeah. knew saying that wouldn't change their mind. I knew that they wouldn't come be a person like this today. And then, oh, Heather on Facebook said I was being terrible. And now I'm not. You know, I <laughs> knew that wasn't the outcome. Right. But for some reason, I just felt like I had to say something because I just had to feel. I just wanted to give the sense that people disagreed. Right. There were people out there who did disagree. Right. 
Um, and so I just, that's the only time that I really like got into it at all, like yeah. very much not into it. Um, I did want to share sort of an, a story of like the very, a uh, very converse sort of situation, which is yeah. like somebody who I kind of like, we would bump into each other, like bump heads face to face. And I think it's because in a, in a face to face interaction, sometimes we would like knee jerk say something like that person would say something to me that I was like, yikes, like, geez, like, ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then actually when this person and I would interact, like an online environment, like in a sort of chat, like environment that never happened. Right. Um, the, the knee jerk reactions went away because both of us sort of reconsidered, like we would just take a beat to answer. Yeah. And sometimes there would be the little dots would show up and then, <laughs> and then we'd kind of go back and then sort of do it again. And so the, the emotional sort of, uh, offense that was taken at some of the knee jerk sort of responses was just totally taken away. So some people are maybe just sort of better in type. I don't know. Yeah. Um, or maybe it took like the emotion out of it, but also I feel like if the emotion did happen, at least in person, we, I could be like, ouch, like, why did you say that? Whereas maybe in a virtual environment, I wouldn't have resolved it. I might have just let it fester. So I don't know. I don't have an example that that actually happened. But it was just funny how the, uh, you know, letting the sort of a little bit more time elapse in the conversation uh, through the virtual sort of type through type um, gave it, took the almost like that emotional thing out in that case. That's interesting to jump back to your first example. Like, I, I think it's interesting how sometimes those type patterns of interactions like add to this polarization. We feel this like when we step out and say something, we get a bunch of like private messages that gather around. But it's this like and then the the other side of that never sees that. And so it's like this. It increases the polarization or it feels like it to me, uh, which is disturbing. And we, we had talked a little bit about polarization I think last week but I think this is a case where we I have noticed increasing polarization that's kind of disturbing right yeah yeah yeah. I agree I think it's just because that there's just that um the natural force of the dialogue just wasn't there like you said the people were private messaging me their opinion and that they agreed with me but they weren't saying it on there as well there was no although sometimes people get a hate pile on yeah (laughs) you know that happens um but uh yeah anyway in that context it 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 didn't happen um yeah and yeah it is disturbing the the extremes of this like the the way the tools like that online hate groups are using to you know seem seem way over the top right like that and that is disturbing like i think conflict i don't know if you it's very recent i think it just happened in the last couple days there was a cloud flare was kind of pressured to take down this site i won't go into the details but it is uh alarming (laughs) what some of the fringes are experiencing in terms of conflict Um, yeah by being uninhibited and by feeling in a safe space and that other people agree and that there's sort of the natural disagreement that would come from being sort of in a general population is removed by being in a group that just thinks the same way that they do right yeah, and I don't think like 
maybe sometime when we're feeling brave, we can jump into online extremism because that's like the the <laughs> yeah that's, the, a the con- that's <laughs> conflict to a, a different level. Like I think yeah. the conflict we're talking about is more the average person. What is the type of conflict they see yeah. online it's, and in real life? So. People just disagree with each other. It's natural. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I. Yeah, I feel like we could probably wrap it up there. I do. Let's like, leave it there. I, I like the uh, the. Uh, I want to circle back on solipsistic interjection because I love that word, and <laughs> we we'll, might dive into that a little more. But uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for chatting, Heather. All right, sounds good. See you next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To hear all our episodes, search for Human V Robot wherever you find your podcasts.